came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Today is Thursday the 27th of December 2018. Merry Christmas. Welcome to our holiday edition of the Astrophys Podcasts. At this time of year, we love our holidays, so we take a bit of a break. But what I've done is I've gone through our data and I've found our top three astrophysics episodes for the year and our top astrophotography episodes. So we'll be bringing these best of episodes to you during this holiday break. So first up in this episode, We're combining three interviews from our most popular interviews for 2018. So in this episode, we've got the interviews with Kirsten Banks, Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith and Dr. Jane Kaczmarek. Hello, Jane. Hello, Brendan. Nice to see you. Nice to finally meet you. Finally. Thank you very much. It's great to be here and to look out the window and see that beautiful telescope out there. Yeah, there's nothing quite like it. It is a sight to really behold. Yeah, what an office. Now, it's such a pleasure to be here in Parks in New South Wales, Australia, at the famous Parks Dish to speak with Dr. Jane Kaczmarek. Back in June this year, in episode 60, you told us about growing up in Wisconsin and how your love of astronomy developed and your penchant for asking questions and your serendipitous move out to Australia and how your PhD on immense magnetic fields spanning the Magellanic clouds has led you to work with the CSIRO on the receiver upgrade on this wonderful radio telescope. You explained what receivers are and how the unique UWL ultra-wide band receiver was installed inside the telescope's focus cabin. Now, Jane, can you tell us how the commissioning process is going? And is your new receiver performing as expected? Yes, the commissioning efforts are going fantastically. We've gotten all of the radio light that we had hoped to get through the UWL through the processing system, and we've got huge data volumes that we're working through currently, but it is going according to plan. And actually at present, the UWL is actually not installed up in the focus cabin because we're doing some final tweaks on it with engineers in Sydney. So it's going to have its final reinstall in about two weeks' time, where we will have two solid weeks of 24 hours a day working. So we've got our work cut out for us, but... It's all going to plan. Fantastic. So let's find out now about some of those teams. It's very collaborative work that you're doing. Uh, Can you tell us about the scope of the team you're working with? So you've got engineers and 
technicians in Sydney. Tell us about the teams that are involved in this program. Well, you're absolutely right. This takes an absolute team effort to get something like this off the ground and working. It's been a huge effort from, like you said, engineers in Sydney, the engineers here at Parks. There's actually a number of people around the world, including the UK, Italy, the US and Canada that are helping us actually commission this instrument, doing some of the night shifts, if you will, so that we don't have to stay up all night. But what I have enjoyed so much about this collaborative effort is that it's allowed me to get a little bit more insight into what engineers think when they see receivers. How are they perceiving this huge instrument? How do they make it work? And it's actually allowed me to understand the technology that we're using a little bit more and be able to appreciate it that much more as well. Okay, so there must be an incredible queue of researchers hanging out to get time on this newly refurbished dish. Is new research happening already and being phased in or they all have to wait for the official sign-off of your UWL. Well, we have actually successfully done some new science already, and we're working towards getting that published and actually writing a huge scientific paper about the receiver itself. But you're right, there's a queue. There's a long list of people who actually put forth their science proposals, what they want to use the new receiver for in order to do their new kind of science. And so we actually go through a process of every six months, or what we call a semester, a scientist will submit their proposal, and board of astronomers deem that that sounds reasonable and sounds feasible, they'll give you time. So we're just, actually just October 1st, we started our new science semester, and there is a very long line of very interesting science projects that will be using our new receiver. But everyone needs to take their turn and wait their turn as well. Yeah, well, I just saw in your foyer there, there's a list of all the projects and the time allocations, and it sounds like there's no downtime at all. It's working pretty hard all the time. You're absolutely right. There's almost no downtime this this next semester, which is almost unheard of for a lot of telescopes. So we have our maintenance that we need to do, which is about once a week. We'll take a few hours to make sure the dish is still operating and it's safe. But other than that, it is all science all the time. Fantastic. For those following at JF Kazmarek on Twitter, we can clearly see you're having far too much fun climbing up the pylons on the dish, up to work in the focus cabin, suspended way above the dish there, and actually driving and parking the dish itself. Can you tell us, look, you're a scientist, you're an astrophysicist, you do a lot of that theoretical work. Can you tell us what you're thinking as you're doing such amazing things as part of a normal day? I'll tell you because it's the same thing every time. I think, how am I this lucky? I never thought that I would be able to experience some of these things like climbing up to the focus cabin 30 meters above the dish. It is awesome. (laughs) And as we're looking out my window now, we're watching the dish kind of dance around and point right to my office window. (laughs) It doesn't get old, and I hope it never will. It is awesome. Fantastic. Now, you're an accomplished researcher, Jane, and you can commission new instruments, and I know you have a passion for outreach and have developed some wonderful programs that you deliver to the public out there at the DISH, and you also have some great education programs that you're taking into schools to inspire the next generation of girls and boys. So what's next for you? 
can you get a balance of all three of those skill sets and where would you like to go next with your career? <laughs> when, you, when you list it off like that, it does sound like a bit, uh, a bit much. I do do a lot of outreach and I think my time here at Parks has actually reignited my passion for it and I've absolutely loved it. But for what comes next, I hope to really continue in research. It is my true passion. And being in research actually opens a lot of unique doors to continuing outreach, to be able to inspire the next generation to do astrophysics, because, you know, seeing is believing. So seeing an astrophysicist in front of a classroom lets the students know that it's something they can pursue. So next, I hope I get to continue in academia or in a research position, much like what I'm in now. Yep. Security's not a big thing for scientists. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> so with your outreach, what's the essence of your message you deliver to the general public out here in your visitor centre or when you travel out to schools? What are you telling people? I think there's really two things I try to get across, but I always make sure that whatever message I'm conveying is unique to that group because every group kind of ha is looking for something particular and once I find it I really want to focus on that but I find myself time and time again really just saying the simple thing of astronomy is something you can do this can be a career option for you you don't just have to have a PhD there's engineers there's mechanics there's a whole team an army of people that are supporting things like the dish or like all of the other telescopes that are being built across Australia. And it's something that you can do. If it's your passion, follow it. But I think maybe the most focused for me is I'm trying to take this message to rural Australia. The cities, I mean, they also are very deserving of the yeah. same message, yeah. but I think it might be a little underrepresented on this side of the mountains, if you will. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that the students you know, out here have that understanding that this is something they can do. Because when we talk about how good Australia is at astronomy, who better has that connection or that ability to grasp why we're good than those of us that look up and see a dark sky? Yeah. It's really already kind of an advantage, if you want to think about it, for, for students that are in rural areas to already understand why we are so good at what we do. Absolutely. So, what a brilliant professional career you have, Jane, and we can be confident that you're inspiring great participation for women in STEM, for example, with your research, your commissioning and your outreach work. Now, scientists are not all white lab coats, hard hats and computer nerds. <laughs> <laughs> we all have biases and foibles and strengths and weaknesses. So let's briefly now talk about your avian children. They are not <laughs> just chooks. <laughs> they are incredibly beautiful catwalk models. They are so far removed from your traditional Rhode Island Reds or Australorps that I doubt you could easily pick up from a Parks Agricultural show. Can you tell us about your allure? for these charming animals, please, Jane. Oh, absolutely. So I do have four pet chickens, and you're right, they aren't just chooks to me. They are very much like my children, if you will. They, I have very unique breeds as well. So I have a Belgian Duclay, I have a Polish chicken, and I have two silkies. And what really attracted me to these breeds is the fact that they're just so weird. 
and they each have a personality that I've been really enjoying to get to know. So they, yeah, it's fun to, you know, do a bit of yard work. Now that I finally have a yard living in parks, I can have something like this. And it's, it's fun to have them follow you around as you're just kind of mucking around in the backyard. It's been fun. It's been yeah. really fun. But actually, you can get them not that far from parks. Most of my chickens came from Chugong. So you just need to start looking, and it turns out a lot of people like chickens. Something Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to radio astronomy now. Before we go, can you tell us about the next generation of instruments that are coming to the dish, and what sort of research will they support? And an important question, I think, is, is blue sky research an appropriate term for radio astronomy? So we are planning a whole suite of new receivers at parks. One is going to kind of be the, the sibling of the ultra-wide bandwidth low. So we're currently designing something called the ultra-wide bandwidth high, or the UWH. The UWL, or the ultra-wide bandwidth low, even has a little notch in it, just for where the UWH will sit perfectly if it's made. So that actually will be a, as the name suggests, it'll be a high-frequency receiver. So it will see much higher energy radio light. And you'll be able to do much of the same kind of pulsar searches, just at higher frequencies. And for spectral line people, people that want to actually see how molecules in space move, will be able to look at a very unique set of molecules at those frequencies. We're also in the design phase of something called a cryogenically cooled phased array feed, or cryopath. We like to shorten things. And the cryopath is going to be kind of the next generation survey instrument for parks. So out in Western Australia, we are building the Australia Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, ASCAP, and they also have phased array feeds on them. Yep. So this is the next generation. It's going to be cooler, it's going to be more sensitive, and it's going to increase the survey speeds of something like parks so we can actually see the whole radio sky much faster. And with regards to blue sky astronomy, it's a hard term with that one because, especially at radio wavelengths, we can see through clouds like it's cloudy today here at Parks. Not a problem for radio astronomy because we can see right through that. But it is a very exciting time because these advancements in technology, the move to kind of data-heavy science, we're going to see a lot of the universe we haven't been able to see before because of this new technology that we have. So with all the data that we'll be getting from this new technology, it really is going to be a new universe that we're going to be able to see. So blue sky astronomy, sure. And you're in a perfect position to look it straight in the eye. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hope we get to see some of the great new discoveries coming yeah. out of parks. Can you see yourself working at SKA or Meerkat or Astron or as part of this new generation of ultra-powerful instrumentation. I certainly wouldn't say no to those opportunities. I have a number of friends who work at those instruments and that are loving it. It really is a fast-paced world of research now, and now that I have a little bit more skill in commissioning instruments, I hope that I could be of help or any of those telescopes around the world. But time will tell. Fantastic. Well, that is fabulous. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane Kazmarek. It's been a privilege to come to Parks to speak with you and to share your great adventure in science and radio astronomy with our listeners. Thank you so much. And thank you, Brendan. I think we should put a hard hat on you and take you up in the tower. 
That would be awesome. Let's go do that. And today our feature interview is with Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, research astronomer, author, and presenter of television Stargazing Live. So let's cross now to speak with Dr. Lisa. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Brendan. Great to be with you. How's it going? All going very well here. Today we are awed to be speaking with one of the icons of modern astronomy, Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, astronomy researcher, author and presenter of ABC television Stargazing Live. She uses the world's largest radio telescopes to study the life cycle of stars and develops new world-leading precursor telescopes building the Square Kilometre Array. She has a doctorate in radio astronomy and masters in physics with honours in astronomy and astrophysics. She has scores of refereed journal papers to her name and her first book, When Galaxies Collide, was launched yesterday and you can order the paperback or digital version from Melbourne University Press. She has won the Eureka Prize and CSIRO Chairman's Medal and runs a popular international astronomy distant learning course. So, can you tell us about growing up in Essex in England, leaving school at 11, and please tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies in your backyard there in Essex? Well, yeah, Brendan, I was very lucky as a kid, I guess, that I grew up amongst nature, and we lived in a little village called Weathersfield, which is just north of London by about 50, 60 kilometres. So we had a bit of sky glow on the, the southwest horizon. But generally, we were pretty good up to a, a point. So, you know, just by chance, we looked at the stars occasionally. And it wasn't really till I was about 12 that I got really interested in astronomy because my dad showed me this newspaper article about the planet Mars, and it said you could see Mars up high in the sky, and you didn't need a telescope. And, of course, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with how bright Mars is, particularly um, recently. It's, it's been towards opposition uh, last week, and its closest approach, so it's very, very bright. But I had no idea as a 12-year-old kid that you could see it with the naked eye. We really got into astronomy, my dad and I, and I really took it on as a, a wonderful hobby and started astrophotography. Never had a telescope because we didn't really have enough cash, but just used binoculars on my naked eye and I really enjoyed it as a hobby. It was, it was fantastic. And as you alluded to, I didn't go to school um, from the age 11, which is a bit unusual, but quite a few kids are homeschooled. The local school wasn't really something I, I fancy going to, so... I learned a lot about astronomy, a lot about philosophy and history and other subjects that I found interesting. So really my, I guess my career in astronomy started from there. Fantastic. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? They did. When I was a kid, I was quite practical and quite sporty and outdoorsy. So some of my early aspirations were really to be a police officer I remember that way back, and I think I wanted to be a park ranger in a national park as well. You know, these people who tramp across hills and do lots of outdoorsy things. And I think that was probably because, you know, those were my passions and interests. But as I got into astronomy, I started to realize 
that this is a real job. And I, I saw people on television shows like Tomorrow's World, things on the BBC um, growing up in the UK, that showed me that there were real people who were scientists. And I'd never met anyone who was a scientist, and I'd never had access to that kind of world. But I could see that that was a possible career for me. I think that's one of the reasons why, as my hobby became a real passion that overtook me, I realized that I could be a scientist as well. And I think that's one of the reasons as well that I like to be on television and, and talk to people about astronomy, to show them that astronomers are real people and they don't have to be massive brainiacs. They're just real people who have a passion. Fantastic. Then you went on to earn your master's degree in physics with honours in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and a PhD in radio astronomy from Jodrell Bank Observatory at the University of Manchester, then on to the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Germany and then the Joint Institute for Very Long Baseline Interferometry in Europe, the JIVE, and that's in the Netherlands. Then you moved to Australia to make it your home base about 10 years ago. Can you tell us how that big move came about, please? Well, I loved Australia as a kid because I used to watch shows like Home and Away, and it sounds ridiculous, but, <laughs> you know, as a kid growing up in a cold country with lots of cloud cover, this was a glamorous place. And um, it wasn't just that, though. It was the, the history of radio astronomy in particular in Australia. Um, it has a rich history, and your listeners will know about the Parkes Radio Telescope, the DISH, yeah. Um, an absolutely iconic telescope that's been around for 50 years, just more than 50 years now, and it's been improved and improved, and it's still the world's leading single-dish telescope in many respects. So, you know, things like that really drew me to Australia professionally, as well as the personal reasons of, you know, a nice climate and a wonderful country. So I was very, very happy when I saw a job um, advertisement for a postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Sydney. That was just about 10 or 11 years ago now. I applied and I was very happy to, to get an offer. We jumped in the plane and <laughs> never looked back, I guess. It's a very, very good story. I love, love being in Australia. That is fabulous. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your work as the CSIRO's ASCAP project scientist, leading a group of 30-plus scientists to develop the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescopes, an array of 36 12-metre dishes in a remote and necessarily RF quiet zone in outback Western Australia. The Australian SKA Pathfinder Telescope is so exciting and we're at a crucial time right now. We've built all 36 dishes out in the remote Murchison Shire, which is a shire with no town, um, yep. has a population of 120 people <laughs> and a size uh, one-third bigger than the Netherlands. So it's, it's an absolutely enormous region, very few people living there, and it's a perfect place for radio astronomy because we're well away from all the trappings of civilization, towns and cities, which spew out these horrible radio waves, as we're doing now. But, you know... It's been a great project to work on. Um, I've been involved in some way for the last 10 years, and I've gone from you know, looking at the building of the dishes themselves, um, the, the development of the supercomputing facilities, and right through now to the early science program, which I'm involved in doing a project with a PhD student that I supervise, 
called Shannon Melrose. He's at University of New South Wales. And we're working towards looking at very distant galaxies and finding black holes and weighing those black holes, determining their masses throughout the history of the universe. So it's looking at how galaxies evolve and how they join together. When galaxies collide, they, the black holes form um, larger black holes inside the centers. And, uh, you know, I've gone through that whole process from the very beginning. So, yeah, it's been a, a great pleasure to, to work on this project. And we're just going to expand in the future to create the, the very, very exciting Square Kilometre Array project. So, you know, the sky's the limit, really, at the moment. And we're going great guns. Fantastic. Thanks, Lisa. We have featured the SKA in quite a few previous episodes, and it's a wonderful billion-dollar project that's already producing groundbreaking science. Now, let's move on to your book that was released yesterday, When Galaxies Collide. It's a fabulous achievement and much, much more than two galaxies colliding, of course. Let's go through a few themes in your book. Can you tell us about your underlying theme, of our human connection to the night sky and how when we look at the sky, we're really walking with our ancestors. I believe that astronomy isn't just about science. It's not just astrophysics and, you know, interesting uh, intellectual pursuit. It's really a human pursuit. And I've always felt as an amateur astronomer before I became a professional that, that it really touches me to learn astronomy through the history of astronomy. We always learn the constellations and, you know, we, we might learn the, the ancient Greek and Roman names for stars and the, the Arabic names for stars. And all of that connects us with our ancestors, but also on a personal level. You know, my dad showed me the stars when I was younger and I never knew till recently that his dad had shown him the stars when he was a kid. He never even mentioned that. And it, it made me realize that even though I'd never really met my granddad, he died sadly when I was very young, a, a baby. My granddad and I were connected in a love of astronomy and that had been passed through the generations. And, you know, the stars are, are really a way for us to travel through time, not just because when we look through space, we see distant objects and we see them as they were millions of years ago. We can travel through time that way. But on a personal level and on a human connectivity level, if you look up at the night sky today, you see it pretty much the same as it was a few thousand years ago. Um, it does change over time, but it's a very interesting thing that you can have exactly the same connection and exactly the same experience as your distant ancestors. And I find that a wonderful thing. And I think that's why it really touches us as people when we see a truly dark sky. It's quite magnificent. That's beautiful. Now, can you paint a picture for our listeners of another theme in your book, how our sky is ever-changing and even the constellations are temporary? That's right, yeah. The Southern Cross is, you know, on the Australian flag and it's one of the most famous and recognisable constellations in the Southern Hemisphere. But if you look online, you can, you can see a wonderful image, a movie that somebody's created. Um, which shows how the Southern Cross will change over the next 10,000 years, and it will be completely destroyed over 10,000 years. So really it reminds us that the stars that we see and the constellations that we see, these are very nearby stars. And as we all orbit our galaxy, the Milky Way, those stars and our star, 
all move relative to one another and shift very quickly. So the proper motions of the stars, which shoot across the sky quite rapidly over the period of a few thousand years, means that the stars will dissolve in their shapes. And, you know, even 10, 15,000 years hence, the sky will look rather different. I found that a really interesting thought. Um, I also, in the When Galaxies Collide, go into the theme of historical understanding of changes in the night sky. So in history, it was really understood that anything that changed in the sky was really bad luck. In fact, the word disaster has its origins from the words bad star or unlucky star. So it was seen as a change in the night sky, for example, a nova, a new star or a supernova, which have been seen historically, was seen as portents of really bad luck. And often people would be sacrificed, the kings and queens would, would go um, to in, enormous lengths to try and get rid of this bad luck. Um, so human history has kind of been littered with examples of using the stars to really understand and predict human behavior. The basis of astrology, which of course we know is discredited in any real sense, but historically it's a really interesting concept, I think. Fantastic. Thanks, Lisa. Now, the title of your book is When Galaxies Collide, and I guess everyone's fascinated by collisions of every source. Tell us, please, about this impending collision that has already started in some ways. Can you give us a skinny on the galaxies involved, the when, the why, what will happen, and what will happen after these two stunningly beautiful galaxies collide? We have got the most exciting future for our night sky. It's not going to be just the stars and blackness. We're going to see huge changes, not within our lifetime, maybe not within humans' lifetime, but if we go to other stars and colonize the galaxy, or even if we think about other creatures living throughout our galaxy, observing the night sky, there are going to be enormous changes over the next few billion years. So we live in the local group of galaxies, and these are gravitationally bound together. So we're in the Milky Way. The nearest galaxy to us that's very, very big and spirally, like our own galaxy, is called Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy. And those two galaxies are moving towards each other 400,000 kilometers per hour. That is an enormous rate, 400,000 kilometers every hour. We're moving closer to Andromeda. So in about 3.8 billion years' time, which is less than double the, the age of the Earth, we will collide with Andromeda and the two galaxies, the gravity will overtake everything else and the two galaxies will move through each other, collide, interact gravitationally and that will cause an enormous disruption in the gases between the stars. Now most stars will actually collide with each other like snooker balls um, pinging off but the gravitational collision will form a lot of disruption and the gas in particular will crush together to form new stars, new very massive stars, um, things like the very bright stars in the Pleiades. Now, this will create incredible changes in our night sky. For starters, we'll have a lot more bright luminous stars, blue and white stars, supergiants created near the Earth, and the sky will change fundamentally. We'll have a lot of more supernovae going off in the sky, so there'll be enormously bright stars shining for months on end throughout the day and the night, and our future descendants will also see the sky change enormously. Instead of just the Milky Way, 
you'll see huge arms and ripped apart shreds of our galaxy all across the night sky. So there'll be an enormous change in, in how the sky looks. Then when the galaxies come together and form one, the supermassive black holes in the centers will collide and a huge ripple of gravitational waves will engulf our galaxy. And then later on, the gas will be expelled from the galaxy um, by these huge jets which will push gas outwards at very close to about half the speed of light, so very, very fast. And that will kind of quench all the future star formation in our galaxy too. So huge, enormous changes. Sky will be filled with about 400, 500 billion stars, all old, all glowing faintly in orange and yellow and red. And the whole sky will be filled with this enormous core of the galaxy, which will really blot out any view of distant objects. So it's a very exciting and very dynamic situation that's going to happen when galaxies collide. Fantastic. I can hear the wonder in your voice, uh, Lisa. Sounds like it's worth hanging around for. But that's another story. Now, the mic is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, in equity, outreach, our quest for knowledge or space. The mic's all yours. Well, that's a good question what I'd like to rant or rave about. I think the most important question for us all, the collective responsibility, is light pollution. Because in When Galaxies Collide, I talk about light pollution and how it's really robbing all of us and new generations of, of the joy and wonder of the night sky. It's not really that there's nowhere on Earth that's dark, because that's not true at all, but mostly where people live, there's an enormous amount of light pollution nowadays, and it's really difficult to escape from. Around 60% of Europeans live under such light-polluted skies that they can't see the Milky Way, and in North America that figure is 80%. Now, in Australia, we have a lot of empty spaces, which is wonderful, where there aren't many lights. But unfortunately, because of industrialization, 90% of us live under light-polluted skies. So really, although we can drive out into the country, it's very difficult to get into a truly dark place. So I really would like us all to think how, in our everyday lives, we can turn off the lights, we can direct lights downwards, we can talk to councils when lights are encroaching unreasonably up into the sky. It's not about turning lights off, but it's really about directing them in the right way so that the photons, the particles of light, are traveling down to where they should be, not upwards into the sky. So I think we all have a collective responsibility to speak up about light pollution and, and think about how we could make a difference because people power does work. And let's get behind the campaign for dark skies. Fantastic. And by getting behind those campaigns will enable more people to share the wonder of just looking up. So right now, we warmly invite our listeners to follow at Lisa Harvey Smith on Twitter and Professor Lisa Harvey Smith on Facebook. And for Sydney Siders, she's giving a keynote talk at the Powerhouse Museum at 6pm next week on August the 10th. Anything else we should watch out for, Lisa? Well, I'm very, very excited. Um, I am embarking upon my first national tour, so live speaking tour. It's going to be quite spectacular going to theatres across Australia and New Zealand, both in major cities and regional areas. So look out for that. 
uh, you can look at my website, lisaharveysmith.com, and check that out, and uh, all the dates will be on there. So I really hope to see you all at the tour. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith, ultra-marathoner, which we didn't talk about, and astrophysicist. It's been fabulous speaking with you, and we'll remind listeners you can order When Galaxies Collide from Melbourne University Press. You can easily Google it with just four words, When Galaxies Collide, and Lisa, and her book comes up as number one. Great pleasure talking to you. All the best. See ya. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. First, we cross up to Sydney to speak with Kirsten. Hello, Kirsten. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Kirsten Banks, who is a fourth-year physics student at the University of New South Wales and Indigenous Astronomy Educator at the Sydney Observatory. She's a multiple award winner and CSIRO STEM Award finalist, and we're looking forward to seeing her name in lights when the winners are announced next month. But meanwhile... Where did you grow up, Kirsten? And please, tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. And did you have dark skies in your backyard? Well, I grew up on Sydney's northern beaches. And I do love this question very much because I love talking about it. I was always interested in the sky. I cannot remember a time where I wasn't interested in the sky. In primary school, I wanted to be a meteorologist. So I wanted to study storms and storm chasing seemed really exciting to me. But once I went into high school and I saw the documentary about the Hubble Space Telescope and this was at the IMAX Theatre in Darling Harbour in Sydney and these huge, huge photos of space and the cosmos just flashing up on the massive big screen. I looked at it and I realised I want to do that. Fabulous. Now... Tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions, and did those ambitions change? The ambitions changed a little bit. So, like I said, in primary school, I wanted to be a meteorologist and work at the Bureau of Meteorology. That looked like a really exciting day for me. But I also wanted to be, you know, the weather person on the news, pointing out, oh, where's the high-pressure system coming from here? Is it going to rain today? Is it going to rain tomorrow? That looked really fun to me. But when I got into high school, I just really enjoyed the challenges of physics and astrophysics. And from then on, I went on to study it as a career. Fantastic. Now, later in your school days, you discovered something intrinsic about yourself. Please tell us about your Wiradjuri heritage and how you have developed your expert knowledge in Indigenous astronomy. After I finished high school, I started working at Sydney Observatory, where I work now as well. And one day I was walking through the hallway and I walked past this Indigenous map of Australia. And I realised I always knew that I had Indigenous blood in me because my dad would always tell me that that's our background. 
Yep. And I never really knew exactly where we came from. So I looked at this map and I thought, huh, I wonder which group I come from. So I went home, I did some research and found out that I am from Oradjuri. And ever since then, I was just absolutely hooked on learning more and more about Indigenous astronomy because we through their stories, through the Dreamtime stories and their star stories, intertwined are these complex phenomena about space and astronomy. It's just absolutely amazing how much knowledge they had back then. That is awesome. Now, for example, can you tell us about the EMU, which is probably the best known but least understood feature of the Aboriginal Sky Atlas and how do we go and find the emu in our night skies? Now, the emu is one of the biggest constellations I can think of. When I say constellation in this case, usually in Western astronomy, you connect the dots or you connect the stars to create arbitrary pictures. Yep. But uh, in this case, we're using the dark parts of the Milky Way to manifest this huge picture of an emu. Yep. So if you look into towards the center of the Milky Way, you'll see the big bulge of the center is the body. And extending towards the Southern Cross, you have this long neck and then finishing with a head right next to the Southern Cross. And that makes the celestial emu, which in my country is called Gagerman. And the less understood feature about this emu is that it's not just a picture in the sky. It also gives us meaning on how, to we, on how we actually look for emu eggs. So in my country, when the emu is directly above us just after sunset, this indicates that the emu are now nesting and we can go looking for emu eggs. Fantastic. And there was more exciting news too. The fifth brightest star in the Southern Cross has just been given an Aboriginal name. That's right. I'm so excited when I heard about this. Not only this star, the fifth star of the Southern Cross is called Ginan, which is the Waterman name for a small red dilly bag full of knowledge that's passed on, which I think is fantastic in that it's on our Australian flag and it's internationally known by this name. There's also three other stars that have been given Indigenous names as well. It's just a really great step in the right direction for getting recognition for these amazing knowledge of the sky. That is awesome. And for our listeners in Australia, the core of a Milky Way is just starting to come back over the horizon again. So now is an excellent time to go out and have a look and check out the EMU. Now let's go on. After some good basic science and physics at high school, you went on to do your physics degree at the University of New South Wales. Did you feel well prepared for university level physics after your HSC physics curriculum at high school? I think I had a good foundation, at least just by a little bit, for HSC, from HSC physics to university physics. But when I was doing physics, it was more directed towards the history of physics because they recently changed the curriculum, I think it was this time last year, yes. to include less history and more fundamental concepts. Because back when I did it, it was tailored more towards females, which is honestly terrible because I would much prefer the concepts and the fundamentals essay writing. Very but good. But anyway, you can't yeah. win at everything. <laughs> exactly. So tell us how you became a tour guide and astronomy educator at the Sydney Observatory. And what does that work entail for you? Oh my gosh, I love this story. So I started working at Sydney Observatory in my first year of undergrad. 
And the way I got my job, or this job became apparent to me, I was asked on a date to go to Sydney Observatory. Uh, And while on this date, I was talking to a guy, we were chatting about planets, because we were looking at Venus through the telescope during the day. And he was talking about how Venus goes through phases, just like the moon does, because it's closer to the sun than we are. And I mentioned, oh, Mercury must do the same thing, because it's even closer. And the tour guide said to me then, oh, you know what, you look like you know your stuff. You should apply for a job here. So I said, you know what, okay. (laughs) So I went and applied for a job. And while the date didn't go well in the end, I got a job out of it. So it was great. Fantastic. Excellent. Now, what are the main things that the general public and our scientific community should know about Indigenous astronomy? And how can we best preserve this? rich heritage that goes back 60,000 years and this huge depth of knowledge. How can we retain this knowledge we've got and find more examples? So I think the general public and scientific community should know more about how much we actually did know about the sky. So these days we use telescopes, we use special equipment to understand these fundamental concepts of astrophysics. But back 60,000 years ago, the Indigenous Australians didn't need any of that. They looked up at the sky and they could see patterns and they could work out that that planets are up there well before any modern astronomer worked that out. And it's just this sort of knowledge and this sort of recognition of that knowledge should be put out to the general public so they understand and appreciate what we have done for the last 60,000 years. Fantastic. And I hope we'll do a little bit by doing this interview, Kirsten. Now, as well as being an Indigenous astronomy leader, a a museum tour guide, often on night shift at the Sydney Observatory, a woodwind player and a netball umpy, you're also a research scientist with a particular interest in star formation and planetary geology. Why did these areas appeal to you? And could you tell us about your current focus in your studies and your research? Well, star formation and planetary geology seem very interesting to me because we see these stars in the night sky, but how do they actually come to be there? So I found that interesting to start off with when I started learning astrophysics. And planetary geology as well was quite interesting too because what if we were to go to somewhere else? How would we live there? Could we live there? And planetary geology is the first step into getting to that stage. My main focus for this year, this year I'm still studying just undergraduate studies. Yep. So I'm doing quantum physics and a couple of computational courses. Yep. And hopefully by next year, I will start my honours thesis and start working on bigger and better things, galaxies. That will be so fantastic. And after that, perhaps do a PhD? Potentially. PhD will be a little bit different for me because I want my focus to be on Aboriginal astronomy in my PhD. So that's where my planetary geology will come in. I'd like to study the planets and the role of the planets in Aboriginal astronomy. Now, you have also done a huge amount of astronomy outreach for events like National Science Week, for NADOC Week, and at many science festivals. Why is outreach so important to you and other scientists? Well, outreach is really important because without outreach, what are you going to do with your science? 
you first you research the science and then does it just go into a filing system somewhere or do you want to share it with people? Yep. I think the sharing of science is very important because then the best part about it for me is I get people excited about science. And once they get on that same sort of level of excitement as I do, it's yep. great because then I don't feel like the weird one in the room anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. Now, the mic is all yours now, Kirsten, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education or inequity, in outreach, in our quest for knowledge or space. The microphone is all yours. Okay, well, I'm still very much on a high about the most recent Falcon Heavy launch because, oh my goodness, it's the most powerful rocket by a factor of two in the world now. It was the first test flight, and usually with test flights, these things blow up. That's just what happens. Yep. Rockets blow up when it's the first time being launched into space. But this one kept going and put a car in space. And then the two rockets on the side came down and landed together. Like, who does that? Yeah. Apparently Elon Musk with a billion dollars. And for listeners that didn't see it, there's some wonderful YouTube videos just showing that. So right now, we invite our listeners warmly to follow Astro Kirsten on Twitter or Facebook. And she also does a fabulous podcast with our mutual friend, Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez, and I just listened to your last episode about the Falcon Heavy launch, and it was a blast, just sensational. You can find Kirsten's podcast by just doing a search for The Skyentists, S-K-Y-E-N-T-S, and it's out each fortnight on SoundCloud and iTunes, and it sounds like you and Ankel are having a lot of fun. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Kirsten? Uh, there sure is. The last last weekend, no, the weekend before, I actually spent out in country on some rock formations with some rock carvings and filmed for a French documentary, which will be broadcast in France, America, Canada, Japan and Germany, I think. Yep. So look out for that in August. It should be broadcast for your favourite Aboriginal astronomer. Fantastic. We'll make sure to catch that. That's almost worth going over to France for. You're sure right. <laughs> I'm sure it'll end up on YouTube so that everyone can find it as well, Kirsten. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten Banks, Indigenous astronomy educator extraordinaire. Thank you. I've had lots of fun. Okay. See you, Kirsten. Thanks, Brendan. Bye. So something else to look forward to in a couple of weeks. I'll put up our best of astrophotography episodes. We've got two episodes in our best of series for astrophotography. That's one from our regular host, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrove, and another terrific episode from Doug Ingram. Have a happy and safe break and festive season with family and friends, and we'll see you very soon. Bye now. Radio Wave.